This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we normally talk about uh, film franchises, uh, but not this week. I'm your host, Gabe Green, and as always, I am here with my co-host, James Hamrick. What's up, man? Uh, how was your Christmas and uh, New Year's? Uh, they were both really fun. Um, a lot of crossovers. For Christmas, my family and I are really, really into uh, cornhole, and we've got a bunch of relatives who live across the street from us, and so it was like this all-day affair of of when the rain, when the, like the kind of sprinkling and raining stopped, we'd be outside playing cornhole, and if it picked up at all, we'd be inside playing card games. And um, and then New Year's Eve was pretty much just a game night over at a friend's house with uh, with a lot of other friends, and and that was a lot of fun too. So this whole break's been been fairly nice. That sounds fun. I I spent pretty much all of Christmas and New Year's uh, working, which mm. was fun because that's where all the money is too. It's true. So this week we are taking a step back from the Mission Impossible series to do a retrospective on all the films or on the films of uh, 2018. We're just going to run through a bunch of uh, fun categories before going into our top 10 from this year. Uh, overall, James, what are your feelings on 2018 as a year in film? Um, mostly positive. I think you and I actually probably share a lot of sentiments on this year where, you know, there's, there's a lot of good stuff, but... Um, I don't know how memorable of a year this is going to be in retrospect, um, and I think it's partially because for me, like, I almost feel like you know, from 2017 back to 2014, even maybe 2013, we've had years that consect like that have just consistently given me some of my favorite films. You know, if I if I look through my my favorite films of all time, there are going to be several that have come out in those years. And I don't know if I can really pinpoint. There may be a couple from this year that are gonna like all like just stand the test of time for me. Um, but it seemed to be a year of just a lot of a lot of good movies, but not a lot of just amazing movies. Although this was also just uh, not a great year for me for movies um, because I I only ended up seeing twenty five new releases this year, so it's pretty pathetic. But. Uh, <laughs> I'm hoping that my my opinion will be heightened after uh, or, or raised after I see some of the the films that kind of flew under the radar that I really wanted to catch. Um, yeah, I guess I'm the same there. Like, I think I guess I would say it's like slightly below average. Um, I know there were there were a couple really fantastic movies that blew me away. Then a whole bunch of just good ones. Uh, like last year, I had around 20 films that were kind of competing for my top 10. This year, it was only about a dozen. I think that's kind of how I feel about the year overall. Just the, the top two and my top ten are like those movies that really blow you away. But other than that, it's just a, a lot of four-star movies kind of thing. And then my next question would have been, how many films have you seen in 2018? Uh, I guess not, not too close, but I, I, have, I have 75. Uh, three of those were Netflix releases and then two that I caught uh, later on after release on home video. Um, actually, I counted it. It's a, it makes uh, 104 trips to the theater, 11 of which were like re-releases, you know, Fathom Events kind of things. And all of this would not have been possible without like a movie pass and uh, AMC Stubbs A-List, which if you don't have that and you have an AMC near you, it's really, really worth it. Um, they're not sponsoring us, obviously, but that is really how I get to see so many movies and then see them multiple times. Just 
because I don't have to pay for it. Yeah, I really wish that we had AMC. I wasn't able to um, to get on Movie Pass before that whole situation went down the way it did. <laughs> so I never got to reap the benefits of that. And are they even still alive? I think so, on an island somewhere. I guess not making headlines every week is a good thing for them. Seeing as every headline was like a downward spiral. Yeah. Um, but they were a great service when they lasted. So a callback to uh, our previous podcast. James, what do you think are the most underrated films from this year? Um, so what I would consider maybe the most underrated film of the year is uh, Tomb Raider. Um, I I found this... Are you reading my list? No, I, I guess we just have, uh, <laughs> share a lot of thoughts on this because I, I found this to be really, really well done. Um, the cinematography was incredibly exciting and dynamic and Alicia Vikander was fantastic as the lead um, and it just had a lot of heart it it kind of took me back to the classic kind of adventure movies you know moving through temples and jungles and stuff I always I always really enjoy these kind of these kind of films but sometimes you know they end up being guilty pleasures whereas here I don't I don't really feel guilty in how much I enjoyed it um, and I think a lot of the negativity for it was just because it was a video game adapt- uh, adaptation. You know, there was just this expectation it was going to be terrible. When it wasn't amazing, then that means it must have been terrible. Um, and so, yeah, I, I really ended up enjoying it. Yeah, that's on my list as well. Uh, it's, I think one thing that really pushed it up for me, as you, as you said, not only is the action just really well shot and exciting, but it does the thing that Tom Cruise does is where he ma- he makes he gives us time to appreciate just how much pain and effort each and every victory is costing him and and the, the Alicia Vikander really does that now the director Roar Utag really gave them the time and just gave a lot of character pauses within the action just to show that you know this is costing the character something and that just that just makes the action so much more satisfying and also there's a really really great uh, emotional core with her father as well yeah definitely agree um the other one, I'm just, I had three, but I'm going to save one because my third one um, is is for, I'm going to use for another category. But the other one that I want to talk about is uh, Maze Runner: The Death Cure. Uh, this movie just kind of came and went, and there wasn't just a whole lot of negativity surrounding it. Um, it definitely, you know, wasn't praised or anything. Um, but I think partially because it was released so early in the year. It flew by without really any sort of conversation around it, and I actually really enjoyed it. Um, you know, maybe it's a it's a bit overstuffed and and excessive in certain things. I feel like a lot of trilogy ending films are, but but I was really impressed at how it was able to um, use the momentum set up by the Scorch Trials and and find really solid emotional. Um, ways of concluding it. Like I, I was satisfied with the way most of it was concluded, you know. Almost almost everything that I wasn't a fan of is just something superfluous, not really a part of the, the core. Um and visually it was just a lot of fun. The acting was great all around and yeah, I, I really enjoyed my time with the movie. Yeah, I mean it's no secret that I am an enormous fan of the Maze Runner series, and I'm just gonna say it again. When is West Ball gonna get like a Mission Impossible or Marvel film? Or even a Star Wars film? Yeah. Just give the guy something. And my my next uh 
underrated film would be Solo. However, I think I'm going to hold off on talking about that until we get to our top 10 because it's there too. So the next category we're going to be doing is Pleasant Surprises. Um, these could be movies that we had absolutely no expectations for and ended up being good, or movies that we were hopeful for but really apprehensive. Um, so what would your first Pleasant Surprise be? Uh, the first one would be Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Like when I first heard, oh, Sony's making an animated Spider-Man, I'm like, w why we have Spider-Man? But, you know, I, then the trailer came out and it, honestly, the first teaser did nothing for me. I, I really, really disliked the animation style. It looked like a you know, 3D without the glasses. Like I, this is going to give me a headache watching it. Um, the second trailer came out and it looked better, but I, I never really expected it to be just half as insanely creative and just like a good movie as it was uh i'm not going to talk too long because it's also in my top in my uh top 10 but just i i really had very little expectations but then going into this and seeing like such a just insanely clever you know funny heartfelt it's just a beautifully well-rounded film that i you know just, i did not think much of before it came out and also the name was terrible <laughs> it's a video game title <laughs> yeah it kind of is and then the other one was Searching. Uh, and this one, I actually, I don't think I really heard much of anything about it to like right upon its release. I don't remember ever seeing a trailer for it. Um, it just kind of appeared out of nowhere. Like, oh, this awesome film starring John Cho about a guy who, you know, searching for his daughter and it all takes place on the computer. And I was like, yeah, right. Okay, whatever. whatever. That's just <laughs> such a gimmick. But then, you know, again, seeing that movie after hearing all the praise about it, it is a really good movie, and and what's so amazing about it is how it uses just like it creates a cinematic language on the computer screen of like just how we work. You know, like a pause before clicking on something, you know, creates suspense or apprehension or fear. Like uh, like the the scenes like where the dad types out a really long ang angry message to his daughter, and then slowly. B backspaces the whole thing and does a slightly more polite version like it, it creates this language that is that even though it 90% of the film isn't even is uh, is on the computer screen it's still telling us how the characters feel in just in the way the mouse moves in the way they type also also the webcam on John Cho who is just incredible in this movie it it, it creates a wonderful mystery and it, it's always is constantly giving twists and turns and it's always keeping you engaged there's a really great dramatic uh, core about the, you know, the relationship between the father and the daughter. And also, but it's also just very, I think, intelligent and at times profound in the way it looks at how we use computers. And, and not in a, in a, you know, a ch really childish, fear-mongering way about, oh, the dangers of the internet. It, you know, it has that and it shows the dangers of the internet. But it's also just like, this is the way we live now. And it's just more of an observation of that rather than just trying to preach about it. And for all those things, I think it was a very, very pleasant surprise for me. Nice. Uh, that's one that I, I really wanted to check out. I've heard a lot of positive things said about it. So hopefully uh, once things start coming out to rent, I'm going to be catching up on a lot of these. Um, so for my pleasant surprises, uh, the first one is uh, Upgrade. Um, and I won't talk too long about it. It's like you both, both of these pleasant surprises of mine um, are in my top ten as well. This one, I thought, was just a really, really cool original story that um, that really caught me by surprise based on how it was marketed. 
I saw those trailers and I thought it was just almost going to be this kind of grimy Robert Rodriguez kind of movie um, that I was looking forward to just because I sometimes those end up being really enjoyable for me. But it ended up being a lot more than, than just this kind of revenge flick. Um, I, it's not this incredibly philosophical, high-concept sci-fi, but what really impressed me was how patient the film was. Um, I remember being in the theater and 20 minutes in, and aside from the inciting incident, there was nothing even resembling action yet. And we've just lived with this guy who's been paralyzed for quite a while. And we're, we're mourning with him. We're, we're watching him cry. We're watching how much his life sucks right now. And it caused me to become way more invested in this story than I would have otherwise and the visual effects are really cool. The cinematography and the way they do the action is really inventive and, and a lot of fun. And Logan Marshall Green is proving that he's more than just this Tom Hardy, like, knockoff. Um, <laughs> but he really looks like Tom Hardy. He looks a lot like Tom Hardy. But he is, to me, just really, really fantastic in this. And one of the things that's most impressive um, is, his is one, the way he's able to portray sincerity and just vulnerability but during the action scenes where his body is completely rigid and moving in these weird ways but he's giving a fully emotional performance on his face like his face is panicking and and just reacting to everything around him but his body is stiff as it's just performing all these things as efficient as possible just all around a really really fun movie for me with with a little bit more to say than um, than I thought it was going to end up being. And, you know, on second viewing, yes, there's there's some stuff that maybe doesn't completely add up, but it's stuff that I'm able to forgive just because of how much I enjoyed the ride. I like that movie a lot. I think it, I felt it kind of fell apart towards the third act, which sadly a lot of sci-fi movies do. Uh, but yeah, everything you said was really true. I, I especially appreciated, like, it gave a lot of time for us to just sit with and sit in the misery of this, you know, very active man who's now a paraplegic like it gave us a lot of time to get into his headspace and to get into his emotional space but also the you know the fight scenes were fantastic and we made this comparison in our evil dead uh evil dead 2 review how uh, upgrade felt a lot like uh, bruce campbell while he was fighting his hand like that is very kind of looney tunes just that this was like horrifically gory which is very goofy and over the top where he's you know he's he's having to move his body he's pretending his body is controlled by another entity and you totally buy it because his face is like panicking as he's doing all these super kung fu moves and it, it's really fun to watch and then the, the cinematography from uh lee one l as they're doing those fight scenes like very robotic and almost like computerized it's i don't i have no idea how they did half that stuff but it's amazing yeah there there are numerous scenes where i'm just kind of in awe of what they're doing with the camera um the other film that I that was a pleasant surprise to me, and I would I include in my most underrated, but I'm talking about now, is a uh, solo. Um, I was not nearly as bought into the negativity around this movie as many were, but I was also apprehensive about it. Um, I mean, we went months and months and months with only really hearing bad things about its production and. Director's shakeups and uncertainty, even from the actors, and all—all all of this happening in the height of that nasty uh, *The Last Jedi* fallout. Yeah, so you know we're 
left to wonder how you know are they changing things up are they allowing the reaction to that to actually affect what they're doing with this movie the trailer not coming out until the super bowl which was only a, a handful of months before the actual release date which is incredibly out of character for them um i i was really having to start telling myself don't expect much this has been a troubled production and is likely only going to be a guilty pleasure for you. Because for me, as long as a movie has blasters and spaceships, I'm probably going to like it to an extent. But I was not really expecting anything to to truly, truly enjoy on a technical level. But, you know, I'll try to save most of my praise for the top ten. But I was just amazed at what Ron Howard was able to do with this film. Because aside from maybe just a couple things, it feels incredibly cohesive with, with genuine... Um, character arcs and development that fully enriches the world and yeah it i was i was very very pleased that i walked out with just this huge grin on my face yeah <laughs> that i'll talk about later in my top my top 10 and uh now to get into a bit of negativity because a little bit you know life needs a little bit just a little bit but uh we can always have a little bit of time to criticize things uh what are your least favorite films from this year james oh man so there really there are a handful not even a handful. There are some that I think, I guess, are, are a bit overrated, but I'll avoid talking about that because not really least favorite. <laughs> Black Panther. I'm sorry. Uh, maybe a little bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the one and only mention I'll have about this podcast. Um, there are there are three films uh, that I I really did not particularly enjoy this year. Um, two much more so than the other. Um, to start off. Uh, I was really disappointed in The Predator. Um, I'm a huge Shane Black fan. Iron Man 3 is amazing. I don't care what you say. Um, <laughs> and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang might as well be a masterpiece. It's so good. Um, and even something like The Nice Guys is just so much fun. And so I was really excited. You know, the fact that he was in the original, he's coming back, this weird full circle type thing, if you want to call it that. Um You've got him and Tom Jane and Keegan Michael Key all together. Like, the cast is really cool. It had me excited, but honestly, I I really didn't find it that funny at all. Most of the banter never really landed for me. It felt I don't know cheap and and juvenile without without the cleverness behind it. Um, and I was largely bored with a lot of the action. Um, so it it felt really inconsequential to me and and I walked out very disappointed because of, you know, going in with the expectation that at the very least Shane Black is going to entertain me with the wit that he always brings, but I I just didn't really feel it with this film. I I was quite disappointed with this, but I still had a lot of fun with it. I would agree that the banter is nowhere near uh Shane Black's uh average but it was still like shane black's average then like normal humanity is so far apart that it was still i still had found a lot to enjoy with all these actors just being stupid together and lots of blood and gore and cursing and just (laughs) it is like just the excessive swearing and gore is like what i found most enjoyable about the movie um i don't know what that says about me but i guess it was nice to finally just see this hard r action movie again um but but yeah, the, it doesn't compare with these other two, though. The first of which is Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, which we 
we are completely in agreement on, of course, because anybody with a with a rational mind could could see this movie for the awful piece of trash that it is. I'm just glaring at you over Skype right now. Yes, well, that only makes me feel all the more certain. <laughs> I I do not. It doesn't lower my view of Jay Abiona at all. Uh, he's an excellent filmmaker, and none of the lowers films... my view of you. Well, there we go again. That only makes me more certain in this. Um, <laughs> I I think that he did as best he could with the material given, but I think sometimes you just, you come across, although uh, I say that there are definitely some directorial choices he made that very much angered me. Uh, I'll take that back. Um, but I think sometimes you find a script that is, or a screenplay so atrociously bad that no amount of good direction can <laughs> salvage anything. And this is one of the worst, like, stories to follow i i feel like i've seen recently um so needlessly convoluted there's another old dying guy again but this time we're cloning humans and and she is saving dinosaurs with her like pouty kid eyes and it's it's just awful and i can't honestly with with the bad movies in this series i can still enjoy it because you know it's got dinosaurs you know who's gonna who's gonna get mad at that but at least in a lot of those, the dinosaurs feel like dinosaurs here. It almost, I felt very justified when I watched the honest trailers of this uh, movie because he made the exact same joke that I made where they felt like Looney Tunes, where, you know, the you've got whatever the dinosaur with the plated head hitting something and kind of like tiptoeing around until it falls. I was, I was waiting for the and stupid cartoon birds to start flying around its head and hearing the little the tweets going on and... And to see the Indoraptor actually smile, I just, I hated the way they portrayed the dinosaurs here. And they locked him in cages for like 70% of the movie. It's just, like, instead of, I, I, I wasn't, I don't feel like I was able to give it a pass on being bad because of how much I enjoyed the dinosaurs because they're saying, no, no, we're locking the dinosaurs up. Care about this convoluted plot that's boring and... Yeah, I, I really, really dislike this movie a lot. Uh, I will save off on uh, putting it in your place uh, until later, a later category, which I also have this film in. Uh, my last one, and I at least know that we are in agreement on this, is uh, The Cloverfield Paradox. This film was awful. And I, I spent the first two-thirds of this film convincing myself I liked what I was seeing because... I really enjoyed the first Cloverfield, and I think 10 Cloverfield Lane is amazing. And I've, I've been looking for some sort of way to connect the pieces, some sort of maybe resolution to everything in the first one. Um, there's so many different theories about what's going on. And so to see that trailer during the Super Bowl and to say, hey, watch it today, was mind-blowing to me. I was... I. It's rare that I ever go into a movie so excited. And this was just me on Netflix watching something I had no like idea I should even anticipate watching today. Um, and it ended, and my mind was just constantly going through questions. Why did this happen? Why did this happen? How did this happen? How does this make sense? How does this timeline work? Why did this person react so stupidly? Like, it's... The movie makes so many just fundamental mistakes, and most of the humor is just really cringeworthy, and I, I don't know if I've seen a movie with so many plot holes, and 
and all of the reveals feel so cheap and unearned and uh, yeah I I really found on retrospect I found very very little worth remembering for for any good reasons at least with this film yeah this is also my uh, the first on my uh, worst films of 2018 list and honestly i'm trying i kind of push it out of my memory i'm trying to remember i just remember there being so little to recommend the film like story-wise it was just kind of a couple concepts half-heartedly slapped together that never came to anything like the whole like what was the paradox i don't know and just it, you know, you had all these like horror movie scenes where the crew is being killed off, but they never, it never really made sense. Like, why does Plato come alive and kill somebody at one scene? It's just like these things that happen throughout the film just make no sense. Not even within the film's logic, the characters were all pretty boring. Uh, the, I thought the direction was just pretty flat. Like he was, there was very, it was a kind of a horror thriller, but there was so little suspense and it just kind of kept going. Just, it felt like just things are happening and things keep happening, but I have no idea why they're happening. I have no investment in any of it. It was just, it wasn't good. And the dialogue was truly awful. Just for a taste of what this movie has to offer, watch the opening scene with the, in, the enormous exposition dump. That is the first conversation in the car and, that's that's yeah that's, that's all this film is um yeah next one this also uh, could have qualified for our most disappointing category later on it would have been mile 22 but it also is so bad i kind of have to name it here i have been i've become an enormous fan of peter berg over his last three films you know after the battleship and hancock phase it came with these three amazing films in a row with mark Wahlberg, with a lone survivor and then Deepwater horizon which i unequivocally adore and then Patriot's Day which was also really good so he gave us these like three uh films with Mark Wahlberg that were kind of you know based on real life events and he, he just he and he just made these like really fantastic emotional movies and so you know he then when you hear that Mark Wahlberg and Peter Berg getting up to get getting together again to make a movie but this is a very solid concept you know it's not anything new kind of oh we're here we have to get there there's a lot of bad guys in the way you know it's uh, like 16 blocks or uh say like the raid um Three ten to you, but like that's been done before. But it's always a cool concept because you know you ha- you're racing the clock and everything's trying to kill you. Like what could go wrong? Apparently a lot. Uh, this movie is dreadful. I don't know what happened. Uh, the dialogue is so so terrible. Uh, the acting isn't great. It's just like and what's the worst part about it is the direction and editing, which is kind of surprising because I think his films are usually very well directed. Most of the shots don't make sense, and the cuts, the editing. There's like not a single logical cut in this movie. Like you're cutting from this angle to this angle to this angle, and then you're looking over there, and now we're looking over here, and like why are we looking at any of these places? I have no idea. And that and the entire movie is like that. They just and when the action action happens, like like oh that's a cool shot, and it's gone because we're at another shot that's not that great. Then there might be a cool shot, and it's gone again because we're cutting to another shot, and like the, it's it's incoherent. You have no idea what's going on. And they they never really established the characters all that well or the conflict, so you're just kind of thrown into this really garish mess of editing. And also the characters are incredibly unlikable. Like, like Mark Wahlberg is a very likable persona on screen, and he's kind of a hateful person here. Everyone's really nasty, and and then when 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 everything finally comes to a head at the end, and there's this big reveal, it is awful like it is so bad it makes no sense and the film actually forgets to have a climax they climax the second act and then they go then they're going somewhere and like okay now we're moving to the climax 
and it doesn't happen. It just ends. Like, like <laughs> it's so it's it's not good. It's not good, it, it, and it really really hurt me because I I thought this you know might be one of my favorite films this year because of how how well these two guys have been hitting out of the park previously. But I really do not know what happened. And apparently they have another film coming uh, together that they're working on, which I'm still kind of looking forward to. But I guess I've been so chastened that I I'm keeping my <laughs> My expectations minimal. Yeah, I'm. I'm in a place where um, I really, I I like um, I like him a lot as a director, but I also haven't seen all of what is considered like his comeback. Because uh, I I did watch Hancock and Battleship. Although and Battleship is a great guilty pleasure, I think. <laughs> Battleship is absolutely on my list of guilty pleasures, but I loathe Hancock. Um, and, but I did see Lone Survivor, and I really, really enjoyed that. And I've heard pretty much nothing but praise for uh, Deepwater Horizon and Patriots Day. So I, I had come to a point where, like, I did get excited for this because, from what I was aware of, you know, he's he's really on a hot streak right now. Um, but it ended up being one of those movies that I ended up not being disappointed in missing. So, and and hearing from you that the horrendous score it received was earned i was like okay well i won't i won't waste my time yeah and so my final and least favorite film this year was sorry to bother you and there's a whole political mess surrounding this film that i don't really want to get into and although the politics are kind of my issue with it i just found it like before getting into the themes and message i just found it to be a very boring movie like he casted Lakeith Stanfield in leader, and I really like this guy, but he gave him absolutely nothing to work with. The character he plays is just a vessel for uh, Boots Riley to, you know, spew his political message. Um, and I think just I found like it was there were like two there were two or three scenes in the film where I thought uh, Boots Riley's kind of excessive style really worked, and like like you know, he, there's actually some really clever things going on but the rest of the time it was just so like garish and in your face like he like he was just being goofy and weird and crazy and vulgar just to do it um and i thought it was really badly paced it was just boring like there's a whole like the entire second act of this film it just felt like the same scene over and over and over again just kind of it really dragged and then by the time the end came it's just he's just he's just being like being uh, you know quote unquote provocative, and and like on top of that, just the political message like I is you know very very different from where I'm at, and I, I you know I I'm a you know as conservative who watches Hollywood films, I've you know I've come to a place where I can you know overlook the fact that you know most of Hollywood doesn't share my beliefs, and that's fine, but at least tell it well. But this was like watching God's Not Dead or any given Christian film. Where the uh, the opposite side is, you know, demonized and they're all vilified. Everyone, all the non-Christians are evil. That's what this movie was, just from a liberal perspective. And I, I'm, you know, and I feel like the, you know, the people are giving it a pass because they agree with this message. You know, fine. Like, but but it's it's a it's, I think it's objectively it's a terrible movie that is you know is badly directed, badly written. Uh, performance are fine, but m- most of all, it doesn't give its message, it doesn't give its themes in a, you know, in a in a compelling or coherent way. It's just like all, you know, lowest common denominator stuff that's just preaching to the choir without actually, you know, establishing anything and, or, or telling it well. It just, it does, it, it does its themes in a very sloppy and lazy and kind of just insulting way. Yeah, that's one that... Um... I wanted to see only because of the conversation and because of how provocative I heard it was. 
typically I'm, I feel like I'm drawn to those kinds of movies where, hey, there's a, <laughs> there's a lot of uh, conversation happening around this. But again, it's just one on the, the long list of films that I, I was not able to see. The next category we're going to go into is, is more positive. It's, it's not the best of the best. In fact, we're, we're acknowledging they are not, but we enjoyed them anyway. So we're going to talk about our favorite guilty pleasures of the year. Um, so you start us off, and I have a feeling I know what is going to be the lead. <laughs> not, these, for me, these films aren't entirely guilty. I think there's a lot of like really objective quality in They're these guilty. movies. Um, <laughs> well, you haven't seen the other one. That's true. Um, that's true. But, but the first one is pretty guilty. But my 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 big guilty pleasure this year is Jurassic World: Fallen Kingdom. Um, and I won't argue with you that the script is absolutely dreadful. Your know, dialogue, the the, a lot of the plotting, I, I think it does it does a couple very clever things, but doesn't do them terribly well. I think I think what Colin Trevorrow is good at is he has like crazy ideas, but he has no idea how to do, deliver them, and so it, it's a very uneven ride on the scripting level. However, what is not uneven for me is the direction. I think this is a absolutely beautifully directed movie. Um, uh, Jay Bayona just has such. A cinematic eye. Every shot is just beautiful. And also, there's the way he moves the camera, like like Spielberg, like where it's constantly giving information and you know ramping up the action, making it more exciting, and just he's just making every moment just the most awesome cinematic moment it could be. And I found just every second of this film, even as I was kind of laughing at the dialogue, just to be engaging because of the direction. And I think. I said some of the best action sequences of the year. I really want to see him do a Mission Impossible film just because the way he stages action sequences with multiple levels and the camera moving through and, you know, just making the action more exciting, making, you know, and he also has a, he's being a horror director, he has a really great sense of uh, suspense. Like this, like watch, like going back to Jurassic World, I think it's an absolutely useless movie. I think there's absolutely nothing to recommend that movie. It's fine, but there's nothing good in it. Like this film... He he was able, he just made every scene the best it could be. There's I think the suspense is really palpable. There's like a lot of great gothic horror images, but what why I love it, like the things you all criticize, I just laugh at those things because I I believe absolutely to my core that whatever Trevor was trying to do with this movie, J.M.B. saw that and said. This is a dumb B movie, and he made a really, really dumb B movie where you have like arms dealers at a secret underground auction with Toby Jones, you know, selling dinosaurs to them, and they all have these big, thick Russian accents, and everyone's evil and cackling in the corners. It's a big, stupid B movie, and it knows it, and it just executes. Like the problem with most B movies is that. They may have a really dumb, fun concept, but they're just poor, usually poorly executed. This is like a B movie with billions of dollars, millions of dollars thrown at it, and it, one of I think one of the best directors out there behind the camera. So it's like it's just a really dumb creature feature, but it has like a inc- immaculate cinematic eye. I just I thought it improved on like every level. I think the you know, the characters they're still shallow as anything, but they have a lot more chemistry. Uh, the dinosaurs, the, the effects look better. Just everything about it, I found very engaging from a directorial standpoint and it just made it just a very fun like a movie that that got better even as you laughed at it kind of thing i wish i could enjoy it like that but man again i think part of it is i cannot separate it from the universe that it's in and and the characters are something that i maybe the fact that they were so bland and did very little in jurassic world ended up being a benefit to it because when they actually did something here i just I hated almost every second that a human being was saying something in this movie, and and the two new 
millennial oh. characters I was hoping would die horrific deaths. <laughs> you know, it was just absolutely horrible to watch. And but I, I do think really quickly since we've already talked about this movie, um, you said you know like the every like all of there's just got a consistent stream of amazing like best scene in the world it could be kind of action scenes and and that was part of my problem it felt like we hit the point of diminishing returns like by the end of the first act where it's like you know which i guess makes up for the fact that dinosaurs are very somewhat absent i guess in the later part of the movie but you know how many times can we just miss a, a dinosaur snapping its mouth or a car barely making it to the boat or you know, just turning the corner right before... It's just constant, 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 where it's like, regardless of how well you can direct suspense, I get to the point where I'm never in suspense because I've seen this, like, 80,000 times already. But, uh, but yeah, that's just me. Like, I don't hold the Jurassic Park series in any kind of high regard. Like, the first one's a masterpiece, and then there are other movies that... Eh, whatever. So, yeah, like for me, going turning into a B movie is like the smartest thing this series could possibly ever could ever do, um, because it's lost all dignity. Uh, the second one here is, um, which I don't even consider completely a guilty pleasure, is uh, Fantastic Beasts: The Crimes of Grindelwald. And this one, it had I, I fully I'm fully aware of a lot of the scripting issues, but similar to uh, Fallen Kingdom, is I think this movie is a masterwork of direction from David Yates, who has been. Who I, I thought was who's who's in a real slump after I thought like uh, Legend of Tarzan was not great and I thought his direction in Fantastic Beasts was, was kind of flat. Then coming to this, I thought this was a, was a gorgeously directed movie. Every shot is just beautiful. The costumes, the sets, just the 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 way it gives this world this world of Harry Potter life and 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 it's just a, a personality. It was really impressive. Um, I thought that you know, I thought and even though. J.K. Rowling's score was like, I mean, uh, script was like obscenely overstuffed. It w- it was overstuffed with like good to great things. Like, like even like even though I wanted more from every character, I still loved every character. The, every character has so much life and personality. They feel they all feel like real people that I could watch an entire movie about. I thought his direction of the action was great. The, the creatures are ridiculous. The Nifflers and the dragon kitty thing are absolutely adorable. Just. And it's a very entertaining experience, a, a very entertaining experience, an engaging, an emotionally engaging experience. Even though I can acknowledge that you know the script did not do, as d- didn't do its job nearly as well as it could have, uh, but I still found it a very, very engaging film. I saw it three times, and I loved it more, more each and every time. That's one that I'm excited to see, but am refraining until I finish the the Harry Potter series finally. Are you still you're on Goblet of Fire, right? Yes, unfortunately, still on Goblet of Fire. I'm very eagerly awaiting you to finish that series so that we can talk about it on the podcast. So I only had one, I guess, guilty pleasure uh, this year, and it was The Meg. I <laughs> I had, weirdly enough, maybe one of my favorite theater experiences ever, which is strange because the, uh, the minutes before I got into the theater were truly awful. I had... I was meeting a friend in Arkansas. Uh, it was actually Josh, who we talked about the last Jedi with, um, because we were gonna go and uh, go to a pub that he had there because I was passing through. Um, but I had two hours to kill until he got off work, and so I was like, "Well, I'll go and see a movie." And my uh, my maps took me all around every place that I could go that wasn't where the theater was at, 
And so by the time I got there, the movie had already been on for 15 minutes, and I was wondering if I should, like even should, and, and the cashier could not have been any slower. And so I burst into the theater, like with the prologue already ending and, and having missed a lot of stuff. Um, but I was also one of two people in the theater, and I didn't even realize there was another person in the theater until like halfway through the movie because he was in the very back. And so it was pretty much just like watching a, a movie in my home just with this enormous screen. And so I just had my phone out and being like, oh, guys, this stupid giant shark just did this. And it looked hilarious and it was awesome. And um, <laughs> it ended up being a lot of fun. And I, I like the, the visuals of the shark. I, I like really dumb giant monster movies. And so seeing these huge sharks swallow boats and and get shot at was was really fun. So... Yeah, there's not really a whole lot to just praise in terms of craft with this movie, but it just ended up being something that was super dumb and a lot of fun for me and was boosted by the fact that I could just kind of kick my feet up and talk to people and tell them how dumb and fun it was. I enjoyed that as well. You know, it's nowhere near my top. Or it's just kind of there, but it was a fun experience. It's Jason Statham versus a giant shark. I mean, that can't not be fun. Exactly. So moving on uh, to our most disappointing films from this year, and this this doesn't have to be bad films. It's just films that we had, you know, really high hopes for that just didn't live up to them. So James, uh, what films were you disappointed by this year? Um. So really, I, I'm not going to speak to this too much because my my most disappointing films this year were um, my least favorite films this year because I did have a level of expectations for all of them. Uh, I went into The Predator super excited to see another great Shane Black movie and um, the idea of something connecting in however way the, the Cloverfield movie is, was so exciting and, and that was awful. And, and, you know, again, just the promise of seeing big dinosaurs on screen is always fun and then me disliking that movie the way I did is just... Uh, these are all, all three of these movies were movies that I was genuinely looking forward to and and had very little enjoyment to be found in any of them. So so just take everything I said about that category and apply it here. <laughs> um, so my number one mortal engines. <sighs> this is a gig, you know, gigantic sci-fi sort of fantasy about this world where gigantic cities roll around on wheels and eat each other. You know, brought to us by Peter Jackson and Weta. You know, it's written by Peter Jackson, Philip Boyens, and Fran Walsh, who are the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit scribes. Uh, it was directed by Christian Rivers. Like, I, I kind of had like a, a feeling of protectiveness around this film because, having you know, spent an absurd amount of hours watching through the Lord of the Rings behind the scenes and, and you know, seeing Christian Rivers, you know, back there ten years ago, and then watching The Hobbit and seeing a, an older version of him all over the place where he was second year director on the Hobbit films. And then, you know, seeing him kind of come into his own, it was like, Oh, that's cool. Like I, I know that guy. He's, he's, you know, he's winning at life. And I also went and read the first two books of the series, which, which I really enjoyed. And so I had just so much hype coming to this movie. And of course the dreadful reviews kind of brought that down. You know, terrible marketing and terrible reviews kind of brought that down. And sadly they were warranted because this is, it has an incredible, production design and just the, the the way this world is created is really really cool it, it feels like a, a tangible place as there's so much imagination with these gigantic cities and flying cities and floating cities um it, it just if it, it, the world feels very very cool 
but the characters and dialogue are so so terrible and the plotting it's just again it's one of those movies where it just it feels like things are happening because they were written to happen and not because they're like the logical way the story would go and just like like when they ever try whenever they try to be to do some like deep character moments the dialogue is terrible and it never works um the VFX were, were pretty cool and there's like like there are some decent action sequences but it just doesn't mean anything because they, they never did the work to build these characters and to build a meaningful plot. However, there's one thing I really love and that is a sub a, a subplot that doesn't even belong in the movie but I'm I'll take it. It was a subplot involving Stephen Lang as this unstoppable cyborg killer uh which was I thought very imaginative and one of the few places where I thought the, the emotions that the film was trying to go for really hit. Unfortunately, it was like a completely extraneous subplot. Yeah, man, that's like that's not one that I ended up catching. But like you, I had a lot of the same feelings for it before it came out because I just spent, you know, God knows how many hours watching the special features for Lord of the Rings. And, and like you, whenever I saw, you know, um, directed by Christian Rivers, I was like, wait a second, I know that guy. Uh, and it is weird because I do feel like I know him because of how much time I spent with him over the course of, you know, the hours and hours and hours of behind the scenes. Um, and I just, I want another win for, for Peter Jackson and crew after, you know, what is in my opinion, you know, an unfair um, general consensus of The Hobbit. But <laughs> this was not to be the movie that would undo that. Yeah. Um, however, there's another a film from Peter Jackson in my top 10, so it, that heals the wound a little bit. Next one is The Predator. Um, again, I like this film more than I didn't. However, it you know it's Shane Black. It's the Predator series, a series which hasn't had a terribly good track record since the first one. You know, it had the potential to do something really fun and quirky and crazy and explosive. And it did all of those things, just not nearly as well as I thought. And it's also, it is definitely a victim of studio meddling. Uh, from what I hear, the entire third act was was redone. There's, a, there's an entire battle on a highway with like a bunch of trucks and explosions in the trailers that isn't even in the movie. So would it have been a great film without that meddling? I don't think so, but it might, it might have been better, but. Yeah, it's just I I don't think Shane Black is the right guy for a Predator film. I I don't think he has the kind of horror skills. I think he's he's a pretty pretty competent action director, but what he's good at is ensembles ensemble comedy, you know, action comedies with a kind of a, a slightly nasty edge. And he tried to make this into that, but I I just don't think feel like the stri- the horror strengths that the Predator that the best Predator films have is something that he's good at because of he's all humor. So that's constantly deflating tension and he's never able to build that, you know, that sense of fear and palpable dread that you need with this unstoppable killer. Um, So I think he was kind of the wrong person for it. And he made a Shane Black movie, which was fun. The predator parts were decent, but then they were never terrifying. So it just, it, it didn't amount. It it was just a fun kind of forgettable action movie. When I really wanted, I wanted another kiss, kiss, bang, you know, another nice guys, another, even Iron Man three would have been good. Hey, 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 I remember through. Yeah. And the third one is uh the uh, is Outlaw King. This is a film. This is a film about uh, Robert the Bruce and his uh, struggle to free Scotland. Directed by uh, Heller Highwater director Dave McKenzie. I, I and we both loved Heller Highwater. And you know Chris, he's teaming up with Chris Pine again. And you know he had like a hundred twenty-five million dollars to make a medieval epic. Like that doesn't really happen these days. And you know to make like a hard R-rated 
like brutal, grimy film. And I just feel like he didn't actually have a story to tell. Like, I enjoyed most of the stuff that was happening. Like, I think the performances are good. The characters are good. The battle sequences are really impressive. The whole the, the whole aesthetic was really good. But it just it just felt like it it, it came. It showed a couple political machinations, a couple battles, and then it just ended. And it just left you with there was there was no buildup. There was no catharsis. It just kind of faded out. It was a very it was it was just a very unsatisfying experience. Even though I really liked a lot about it. It just didn't really feel like he had a story to tell. He just wanted to tell some events. Yeah, that's... I, I haven't seen that one yet. Um, it kind of got lost in the huge, ever-growing list of movies to watch. Um, but with as many movies as there are on that list, I'm not sure how quickly I'm going to be running to make sure I watch that one. I think it's worth a watch, but yeah, it's not amazing. And uh, give me, let's get into some awesome music. Uh, James, what were your favorite uh, musical scores from this year? Yeah, so there were actually quite a few that I, I really enjoyed. Um, I've kind of narrowed it down to, I guess, my top five. Number five would be uh, the Black Klansman. Uh, there's not really a whole lot here, but there's a couple of themes that just kind of consistently come back and, and kind of capture the feel of the moment really, really well. Um, now that you mentioned, I do remember enjoying that. Yeah, they're just little moments, and it, just the way they use the instruments was really cool. Um, and so it was it, just because of it being this historical drama, it you don't really expect a lot of cool music other than just the, the typical kind of low strings and stuff. But but this had a lot of personality um, that I enjoyed. Um, number four would be. You said it wouldn't come up. It will come up once. Uh, Black Panther. I, I really enjoyed Black Panther's score. There are moments when the emotion is heightened, like in the when they go back to talk when he goes back to talk to T'Chaka, uh, and you, this huge sweeping um, strings sounds so epic, and uh, and they come again at the very the very end when when Killmonger Killmonger is dying in the sunset. There's there's a lot of just what sounds really epic and emotional, and um, and I actually really did enjoy that kind of low beat that would just play as Killmonger would give his little monologues and stuff. It's it's like the the hip hop version of just the really unnerving strings with the Joker and the Dark Knight, where it's like very simple and it's very linked to this character. Um, so I I really oh, and of course just all of the kind of the tribal sounds is, is always really, really enjoyable to listen to. Um, number three would be uh, Hereditary, which is just the entire idea of anything unsettling and eerie reduced down to musical sounds and noises. And it's incredibly, incredibly eerie. It's hard to even really call it a score. It's it's all made through, through instruments and things like that. Um, but they're just unnerving sounds, and we don't really get true themes until the very end, and by the time we get that, it's just horrifying. Um, very, very clever. Maybe one of the best uses of sound to work hand-in-hand hand with the, the actual atmosphere and tone of a film. Um, my second favorite would be Annihilation. It had a lot of really interesting mixes where we've got, we've got a song that does reoccur, but we've got, you know these acoustic like guitars and and uh 
very organic stuff sounding like that. And then we've just got these weird, eerie electronic noises that are like, like make sense contextually in the film, but are also a part of the score. That's just super weird and odd, and a really good audit like auditory representation of the visuals of the screen. Um, so I like that a whole lot. But but my favorite score, probably by a good margin this year, is actually from Isle of Dogs. Uh, I love the the Japanese themes of it, and there's a lot of just really really cool reoccurring themes that play just during all of the many traveling montages and I found myself constantly humming it and uh, and going to it on Spotify to listen to it just because of how unique it is how quirky and it is and how much personality it has it's just really really lovely score so for me all of my scores are ones that I, I listened to outside the film and then I found very enjoyable outside the film like uh, you mentioned some like that are more kind of Part like part of the soundscape, and for me, I, I really don't get a lot of those soundtracks outside the film. Um, so these the ones I have are all just kind of thought were like really beautiful music that I like listening to later on. So the first one was fantastic piece, The Crimes of Grindelwald. This one was done by James Newton Howard, and this one it really plays to his strengths. Where I, I don't feel like he's able to create nearly as many great themes as like a John Williams or Michael G. G., 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 Michael G., G., yeah, um, or Michael Giacchino. But what he's what he's really good at is like creating a central theme and then just kind of teasing it throughout the film and like giving it in different emotional circumstances and then bringing that theme all together for like this really thunderous emotional climax and i just and he does that really really well here um i i really like the central the 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 kind of musical identity he gives this movie it's all like beautiful music like there's like moments of joy and adventure but it's, it's also like very somber sad stuff that i think all of it is just comes together at the climax in like these three tracks that are just absolutely exhilarating um and then that, that combined on the screen with uh, the cinematography and uh, yates direction just made it for like such a satisfying emotional experience um the second one is a uh, solo a star wars story this one was done by john powell with uh john williams uh helping to write the central solo theme han solo theme and uh this i actually i found this one very fun um, I listened to it. Through, I listened through it for the uh, for the review that we did, and I just just felt, I, I really like the, the solo theme. It's very adventurous, kind of Indiana Jones ish, um, and I thought he did a really great job of you know taking that theme and then weaving it into different parts of the story. The Enfys Nest theme is one of my favorite Star Wars themes of all time, and. And often what you have with a film that is primarily action music, it all just kind of starts to feel the same. It's just the same drums, the same horns, the same, you know, it just, they just kind of, it just blends together. But I think John Powell did a really great job of making each action track feel unique and just fun to listen to. They had a great ebb and flow. They never felt like, and they, you know, an ebb and flow and growth and they never felt like they just you know wore out their welcome. And which is, you know, I think a, a pretty good accomplishment for actions, uh, action scoring because it is so easy just to do kind of the same thing over and over again and no one notices because we're watching the action and then the third one was uh, avengers infinity war done by alan silvestri the, the mcu uh music has been like, probably one of the more disappointing aspects like i'm a enormous mcu fan but i think one of the legitimate criticisms is that they don't really go out of their way to create great music um there's a tendency among the films to not bring back themes. That's one thing that thankfully the Avengers films haven't uh, 
haven't done is they haven't tried to create new Avengers themes for every film. They've always come back to Alan Silvestri's wonderful theme from the first film. But here, I like that, Al, that he doesn't just rely on that that theme. He does. He just creates an, a whole new set of really gorgeous themes, including including the theme for Thanos, which is just this really powerful, haunting, it's just terrifying music that he plays throughout the film. And what is fascinating is that over the climax, you know, normally you have the Avengers, the, the Avengers theme playing. Instead, the climax and the you know, the final scene has Thanos's theme playing over it. And then just little, just the touches like when he does bring in the Avengers theme are really good. Uh, there's a lot of like really powerful and tragic music as well as some really cool action music. Just I think it's a very, a very surprisingly uh, good score for the MCU. An honorable mention would have been the, uh, the Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom score from Michael Giacchino. I thought his score for, uh, for Jurassic World was just kind of average. I thought here he really got to play around. Uh, it felt a, a, there's a bit of like a rock, War for the Planet of the Apes, where it felt a bit more wild and dangerous and a bit more, he was allowed to play more kind of in the horror. Um, it just felt like he was under JBO and he was free to do, a, to do a lot more experimenting, get a lot more dangerous than he was in the first film. And now before we get to our final top 10, let's run through some honorable mentions. Uh, James, what were yours? Uh, so I had um, Isle of Dogs is is one of them. It, it, uh narrowly missed my top 10 i, I found it incredibly charming and, and fun to watch uh i i really enjoyed uh the death cure it it was a lot of like the action the way it's portrayed was a lot of fun it kind of combined the post-apocalyptic mad max kind of action scenes with later this very futuristic kind of action and um and i think it did well with all of that and uh and then lastly uh Tomb Raider. This was surprisingly close to my top 10 um, because on a revisit, it was still really, really enjoyable to me. I thought that maybe the the surprise of it being good would wear off, but it didn't, and I enjoyed it even more. Um, so, like I said, not incredible movies, which is just a mix of maybe my disappointment with the this year as well as only having seen 25. Uh, but those would be my uh, honorable mentions. Yeah, all, all of those three are in my 20s, which out of 70 isn't bad at all. So for my honorable mentions, I have number one, Paddington 2. And this is just, just an adorable movie. You know, if, you know, if you're kind and polite, the world will be right. And that's what this movie is. Just sweet, childish wonder and whimsy. But in a way that is not stupid and insulting as so many you know kids films are, especially the live action films with CGI animals in them, which there's like a whole subgenre of that with uh, those dreadful uh, chipmunk movies. But like, you know, the, usually like films like this are so stupid and insulting. They talk down to kids, but I felt this one is actually just very well made. And there's constant, really clever uh, filmmaking, uh, you know, just a lot of sight gags and more, more subtle British humor, which is just always mm. better. Uh, and then Searching is another one. I've spoken about that before. Just a really, really cool thriller that just creates an entirely new cinematic language. And, you know, how often can you say that? And the final honorable mention is The Old Man and the Gun. This one uh, from the maker of your favorite film last year, David Lowry. <laughs> uh, and it's and supposedly it's going to be uh, Robert Redford's swan song as an actor. This is supposed to be his final performance. And the movie feels like it was crafted with that in mind. It's a... 
you know, about this this elderly robber who's like, you know, bank robber who's like in the 70s and 80s, who just basically is a professional bank robber. And he just goes around. He has this little system. And it's kind of just a, a movie about old people who got old, but they just chose to keep on living. And obviously this, <laughs> I don't, I don't, it does, it, it, it makes it very nice and charming. It doesn't really dive into obviously the moral implications of being a professional bank robber, but it's still just a very nice, charming movie. He has a really sweet romance with uh, Sissy Spacek. Uh, they're both just lovely together. It's just a nice old fashioned movie that I just kind of had a small smile on my face the entire time. So, uh, now that we've got our honorable mentions out of the way, it's time to talk about our 10 favorite films of the year, and we'll alternate for this instead of doing all of ours at once. So, Gabe, what is your number 10? My number 10 from this year is First Man from Damien Chazelle, and this film could not be more different. Well, (laughs) his two previous films could not be more different from each other, and now this one comes along and could not be more different from either of those. You know, he doesn't... You know, he doesn't have that big, brash, you know, classic Hollywood style that he shot La La Land with. This one is very uh, subjective. It's shot with like a lot, really a lot of close-ups and long lenses. It's, you know, handheld. It feels, it's, he crafted this movie to feel very personal. Like we're experiencing the, the entirety of the space race inside of uh, Neil Armstrong's head, played by Ryan Gosling. I just, I thought, that I found this film just to be, kind of powerful but in a very quiet way like the character like the character is very subdued and small and that's what the film is like it's very quiet it's very it just kind of it's like a mood piece it just kind of sweeps you along inside of his experience and the, there's like moments of really powerful emotion but also just kind of a lot of quiet stuff um but also the technically it's really well made uh the way he i love how he, he shows space flight basically from the perspective of an, of an astronaut so you just you are basically strapped into this rocket that's just like rattling and shaking and you you feel like they do like this thing is going to fall apart every second it really gets across the terror of being in these metal boxes <laughs> tied to a rocket shot into the sky like who who would be stupid enough to do that and apparently these guys were because they did it uh unlike so many of these films which, which go which go you know really big and grand and operatic this one kind of just shoved us directly into the personal experience of this man's journey uh like there's some like really powerful stuff about the family grief he goes through but it just feels very quiet and poetic it's not my favorite family i i come out of it i don't know that i'll ever really want to rewatch it it's, it's very long very slow and patient but i'm glad i experienced it this is actually number one uh for me on this super long list of movies that i want to see because um both of Chazelle's previous films are my top 10 favorite films and I would argue that Whiplash should be considered at least in the running for the best film of the current century I won't argue with that I will argue with the other one but not with that (laughs) well you're wrong at least on that second one but uh because of that he's just and from what I've heard about this of how different it is um it it really excites me to see what all he's able to do and he's one of my favorite working filmmakers because of just how how near perfect he consistently is just on a technical level um and then when you mix that with just these different kinds of ideas like um like the descent into just the mindset of the character by the end of Whiplash or the old-fashioned Hollywood look of La La Land or from what I hear this very personal you know close look at Armstrong I, I definitely want to catch that um, my number 10 uh, is a movie that we're definitely not going to agree on, uh, which is Annihilation. Um, 
I am not as head over heels in love with this one as, as many are. However, I still really, really enjoy it. Um, and most of my problems with it are kind of overshadowed by what I enjoyed about it. Um, I think at the end of the day, it's not as smart as it thinks it is. And it it does something that movies do that annoy me, which is it feels like we're we're given a puzzle in which half the pieces are missing and then we're told to put it together when it's just... It's vague to a fault. However, the visuals are just consistently stunning. Um, I really, really like the cinematography. Everything just feels oppressive, like we're being surrounded by this jungle that doesn't want us here. And he manages to like find these really haunting compositions. Like when they first find the house they're gonna stay in, it just it looks like we're walking into Chernobyl or something. But the way it's framed is it looks like it's out of a, like a very straight horror movie. And so yeah, just the the I really really enjoy for the most part a lot of a lot of the direction and and when we get to the end, I'm not even convinced that Alex Garland knows what is happening in the last sequence, but it's just so visually stunning that I can't help but be mesmerized with it. So when you when you mix this this direction that I appreciate with just this incredible atmosphere and and music that really sucked me in um I enjoyed it as as an experience so I there doesn't really feel to be any humanity in it the I think I think the actors play up this kind of coldness too much to where it just feels like a bunch of robots on screen um but yeah, I, I really enjoyed the direction, the atmosphere, and the music, and, and how weird he was willing to get with it, that by the end of it, I was like, I I really enjoyed that journey. Yeah, I wasn't a huge fan of this. It felt like one of those films to me where the director's like, I'm so profound and meaningful that I don't actually have to make a good film. But a lot of the hardcore sci-fi nuts liked it, so whatever. <laughs> so my number nine is They Shall Not Grow Old. Uh, this is uh, Peter Jackson's World War One documentary, which where he took original f footage from uh that was shot during world war one you know cleaned it up restored it since a lot of it was shot at like you know from like 13 to 18 frames per second it's all like super sped up and jumpy he went in and like digitally added frames to to bring it you know to bring it back down to normal speed he also colorized it and added sound so we see like this this old original world war one footage played at the proper frame rate you know, restored, colorized with sound overlaid. So it's just, so it just it just gives the uh, you know World War One, which is always kind of kept at a distance because of how jittery and old the footage was. It gives it this sense of you know personality and immediacy that it's never we've ne that we've never been able to see before. But also, what I think is most powerful about this documentary is that there's no narration. It's just it's all of it is done with voiceovers from original BBC recordings that were done in the 70s of of uh, World War 2 World War I, World War 1 veterans and so it just it's it's there's no there's no agenda there's no politics there's no commentary it's just clips of these soldiers telling us about their experience from enlistment to the return home uh it's 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 done from a british perspective, perspective so it's all uh from a, you know british soldiers but it just places us right in the boots of these soldiers and allows us to feel like we've 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 had an experience alongside these guys of what it would have been like you know to go through world war 1 as one of these soldiers and i i love just how different their perspective was from us you know you know today we have an incredibly cynical and uh 
perspective on World War One, and they're just like, hey, it was a job, you know, we there's a job to do, and we did it. And like, you hear that people say that again and again throughout the film. It's just, it's it's so I found it very inspiring to see that these very sturdy men, who just you know they had it. They had they had a horrible the horrible thing happened to them, but they just kind of just square their shoulders and keep marching on. It's very, I just find it very inspiring and just very powerful to be to be placed with original footage and original recordings just into the experience. It's a documentary that I haven't I I haven't seen any other documentaries like this, but I think just for what what Jackson was able to do is an incredible monument to this generation of men, and I think it was very very powerful. Yeah, it seems like there were a lot of really solid documentaries that came out this year between um, that and, and things like um, Won't You Be My Neighbor. Uh, Her free solo was great, too. Yeah, that too. one, which will likely win Best Documentary. And so I think this is the first time I can remember where I'm I'm really trying to catch up on documentaries as well. And and just because it's Jackson and, and that era is just something I've always been interested by but haven't really been exposed to a lot that's that's definitely the first one I, I plan on watching um for my number nine i have the incredibles 2 um <laughs> very very different movie um i was really surprised by this one not enough so to actually make that list however while i really really love the very first incredibles there's this huge group of people who kind of like consider it the absolute peak of Pixar and that's just never been me which is weird because I love the the superhero genre I just I, I've always loved it but it, it hasn't been the absolute best of Pixar to me and I and so I was excited, I was excited about the sequel but maybe not as much as most people but when I watched it I really fell in love with it and I think I might actually enjoy it more than the first one oh, wow. um I think, you know, it has problems that I would say the first one probably doesn't, but it also engaged me as a as a viewer in a way that the first one really didn't. Um, I just, I felt more intrigued by the plot and by the mystery, and and I just, for whatever reason, felt more inclined to really be along for this story, and at, you know, a point to just forget that I'm even watching this animated movie and this, I'm just experiencing a story. And, and I think a lot of that comes from the direction. There are moments where I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, this, this is being directed like a, a, a full live action film in a really, really good way. Like some, the cinematography is really cool. There, the, the chase scene, whenever after this, the whole strobe, epileptic scene happens and she's running down the hallway there are little bitty things that happen in that like the way she uses her powers and, the, and what he does as he's running to try to stop her that are just so cool but you would never think like oh no one's gonna pay this is just a, an animated movie we don't have to worry about that we're, we're not actually having these people interact with physical things but the way it's presented is just so neat that i i really really ended up enjoying this movie quite a bit yeah that's later on my list and i'll talk about it later so my number eight is Creed Two. Um, I actually just watched through the Rocky series for the first time this year, leading up to Creed Two, um, and I quite liked it. I know this is—you've become an enormous fan of this series. I don't know—I don't think I'm quite on your level, but I've still had a lot of fun with it, and you know, a lot of you know, heartfelt emotion. So coming off Creed, which is a really good movie, into this one. It, it, it's not quite as good as the first Creed, but like, who cares? It's a really great heartfelt boxing movie with wonderful characters and 
like you know fantastic character arcs a lot of emotion we get to see i think michael michael b jordan gives a really fantastic performance i i like that this one gave a lot more for tessa thompson's bianca to do as a character i felt the first one kind of relegated her to the corner um you know sylvester stallone is you know still pouring his heart and soul into these movies and i thought it really did, it did a great job of, of bringing back ivan drago from number four which is a movie that i don't like and giving him a little you know a bit of emotion like he was just a robot in the first one but like here yeah he actually has a character he has emotion and i think a fairly satisfying emotional arc for him and his son um just the themes of family with you know them having a baby it's just it's a really solid film i think the boxing scenes are really good it's a bit more like i felt like uh ryan cooley was going for a very kind of real life documentary look uh the director here uh stephen cable jr he made it a bit more cinematic it's a, it's a bit more movie like than the first film which is fine with me yeah i i think the boxing scenes are really good it and uh, it's not as good as like the, say rocky rocky 2 or creed but i feel like it's just a really solid uh chapter into this film i think if they ended here they did a really good job just signing off Sylvester Stallone's run as uh, Rocky Balboa in a just very emotional and respectful way. So, you know, not not as good as the first one, but still a very solid sequel that, that does everything a sequel should. Yeah, this is number two on the list of movies that I wanted to see. And this this one may hurt the most. I, I don't, how did you not it, see this, man? Exactly, like, I don't, you're, you're the Creed guy. I, know, I, I did the exact same thing. I watched through um, the entire series uh, in 2018 leading up to this and ended up, there's an opportunity and for just various reasons, we were not able to see it then. And then I just never ended up going to see it and I'm depressed by it because yes, I have become <laughs> an enormous fan of the series and really, really love the characters and, um, like you, uh, maybe even more so than you, I very much dislike Rocky IV, um, which we'll probably at some point, if we cover it on Franchise Fatigue, talk about. However, I really loved Creed. Uh, and so this movie, to me, was a chance to continue on a movie that I already love and maybe retroactively make a movie that I hate better. Um, so I was I was looking forward to it, and I still am, Um so hopefully, in fact, I may just rewatch the entire series, you know, now that they're all out and just marathon through them to get to Creed 2. So my number eight is Black Klansman. This is a movie that I, I heard about only maybe a couple weeks before it came out. And I have become an enormous fan of uh, Adam Driver. I think he's of, of all of the actors to come on the scene in the last handful of years he's my favorite um i think he's always excellent um but i i'd heard a lot of good things um from uh john david washington as well and so like you know i'm gonna i'm gonna make sure to see this one and i i really really enjoyed it um my my only problem with it is you know, sometimes, and this is this gets talked about in, in other reviews. Sometimes it handles stuff too on the nose and just a little, uh, <laughs> yeah, just just a little bit. Um, and there are times where it feels like it's they're 
literally might as well be looking at the camera and talking to us in the audience and and stuff like that really takes me out of it however everything else if i'm just talking about the the narrative itself and everything constrained within the story being told there i really really loved it i think the acting from everybody is absolutely fantastic driver and washington both deserve nominations i hope that uh, i hope to see them get it um the direction is is really cool it's got it, it makes a dramatic part dramatic, but it's also infusing a lot of the, the scenes with a lot of style and a lot of personality. The way they kind of break the fourth wall by just like throwing movie posters on the wall and scenes like that, it's just super, for something so heavy, it finds ways to be super fun and, and charming and, and, and Topher Grace as David Duke <laughs> may be one of my favorite supporting characters. Obviously, not as a as a person, but just his portrayal of him is so enjoyable to watch. You could he's just hamming it up, and it's yeah. I wouldn't even mind seeing him get a nomination, even if it's not the most dramatic role. He just has he does so much with the role that yeah. As a whole, I just really really enjoyed the movie. That movie it was a lot of fun. Like I, I did had a lot of issues with how goofy and preachy it got sometimes, but it's just such a slick. In entertaining movie and anchored by those two really great performances and, and I think a solid character arc for them as well. And so uh, my number seven is Solo, and we did an entire two we did two entire podcast <laughs> episodes on this film, so I'm not going to you know wax too poetic. I'm just going to say it is the epitome of a great adventure film. It's you know Lucas made made a new hope as a callback to the adventure serials, and that's what this is. It's just an exhilarating nonstop. Fun, you know, thrill ride beginning to end with fantastic characters, fantastic actors, wonderful direction from uh, Ron Howard. It's just, I every time I watch it, I am smiling from beginning to end. And yes, it has a lot of a couple narrative issues, but I don't care because it is such just a joyful piece of film to watch. Yeah, well, I'll talk about that later. Um, right. My number seven is uh, Upgrade. This it started out much higher on my list rewatches kind of pointed out some of the things that didn't work however it was not enough to uh to remove it from my top 10 um i like i said i'm not since i've already brought it up before i won't talk too long about it however um i just i love the visuals of the film i love its portrayal of a future um for me too often films portray future in just this completely unbelievable way um I mean, apparently Blade Runner is supposed to be a reality as of this year. Uh, however, this feels very believable. It, it looks like where our future could be heading aside from this kind of miracle chip that you attach to your spine. However, um, yeah, I just I enjoyed the way it portrayed um, the future. And, and like I said, L- Logan Marshall Green gave a very good performance from just this kind of somber, emotional uh not guilt stricken, but just this man who's who's being weighed down by by the sorrow with this really cool action performance that's different from anything I've seen. Um, so yeah, just all around a really really good movie that's not just dumb action, but is is smarter than that. I don't know about smart, but I did enjoy it. <laughs> hey, there's definitely some smart. There's intelligence in it. So my number six is The Incredibles two. Um, this you know it's it's Brad Bird in animation. What could go wrong? And very little apparently, because this is a very very fun uh, and also 
emotional movie. I, I, what I think he does best here, well, on top of just the gorgeous action, is he creates a wonderful family dynamic. It's just like normal, like child, baby, teenage, and married adult issues. They just kind of, it just feels very, the world feels very lived in. These characters feel like a family. There's you know, really great chemistry. Um, just a lot of wonderful little, like emotional mini arcs running throughout the entire narrative. Uh, a lot of wonderful emotional mini arcs for all these characters, you know, being weaved into the narrative. I think the actual plot and the villain, the villain's plan, aren't great. But for a movie like this, it's really about these characters. It's about the families, about their their journeys together. And on top of that, the action is incredible. Brad Bird is a visual genius, especially when he's in animation. He's always giving us something insane we've never seen before. But he's also doing it like a million, you know, a million miles an hour. So like you can watch this film a dozen times and you'll still be noticing little crazy touches here and there. Um, and there's like these, there are being uh, a sequel that's like what, 13 years coming. I don't know. It's, it's, it's been over a decade. Well over, well over a decade. But you know, you, there are scenes you feel like that this has probably been in his mind for all these years and they just kind of just burst on, on the screen. Sometimes they don't always fit, but there's just these like, you know, virtuoso pieces of uh, sto visual storytelling that are incredible. There's this amazing monologue that doesn't even actually belong in the movie, but I love it. It's like kind of like one of the Rorschach's journals from Watchmen, like this really biting, hateful, venomous thing, at, you know, kind of critique of modern culture that I thought was really awesome. It's, it's, it's it really, you know, it's, it's not as perfect as the first one, in my opinion, but still a, a very satisfying sequel that gets, you know, gets, it gets right what it needed to. Yeah, the action is absolutely a standout, and some of the stuff they do with Elastigirl is so cool to watch. Um, so my number six is Solo, a Star Wars story, um, and I'm just so happy that I can act, that I'm saying this that it's in my top ten um, after everything that happened with the film. Um, you know, again, we've we've talked so long about it. I think I, I don't, I definitely don't enjoy it as much as the the two numbered films. Um, However, I, I do think it is my favorite of the Star Wars stories just because of how much I surprisingly loved Alden as Han and he's surrounded by a fantastic supporting cast. And yeah, it's I think it really does enrich the series. It, it enriches the character, uh, absolutely. And, and yeah, like you said, it's just a total blast from start to finish. And I, I enjoy more and more on rewatches. My number five is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And as I said before, this was a film I did not have many expectations for. But just coming into it, it is just visually, it's it's like, as I talked with uh, Searching, it's like he creates an entirely new visual language. Like this medium between 3D animation and, you know, and uh, comic, the pages of a comic book. It, it just, the way it puts like sound effects on the screen as collisions happen or sometimes like thought bubbles and and just or it'll freeze frame when something cool happens. It's just it's it, I I can't explain because like the things are happening like a million miles an hour. This all these crazy incredible visual touches at every second, and I, I was very afraid watching the trailers that it would just become a visual overload. And thankfully, it never does. It, it's always they're always able to keep it you know very clear and coherent what's happening while doing all having all this insane creativity on the screen and of course the character and emotional arcs are really solid and powerful um the relationship between miles and his father and miles and 
uh, old Jake Johnson, Peter Parker, is really good. Uh, the, the, just this, the whole concept, of the, giving us the concept of the multiverse without making it confusing, <laughs> bringing in anime Spider-Man, you know, Spider-Man noir, Peter Parker. <laughs> it's all these just bringing together all these various animation styles seamlessly. And it, it's just fun to watch. It, the, the visual creativity is off the charts, but also... It has a beautiful emotional core at the center. Like I don't love it as some as much as some people. I think there are some issues, but still, they kind of pale in comparison to what was accomplished. Yeah. So this is actually my number five as well. Um, I really, really enjoy this to the point where I, the first two Raimi's are still my favorite Spider-Man movies. But I think this has actually now placed itself as my third favorite uh, of the of films with the character. Um, yeah, it's. I think I love this for many of the same reasons that I love the Lego movie where Lord and Miller have so much obvious knowledge of what they're doing. Um, and you know, we all, uh, we had ready player one this year and I enjoyed that movie quite a bit. However, that movie felt very much like, Oh, Hey, you know, this thing, here's this thing, but it, it would miss some of the intimate details of that thing. Whereas this, it just feels like they live and breathe this world. They're the guys who hang out at the comic book shop, you know, every week. And you go and say, hey, what does this mean? And they'll probably give you a lecture on it and how it relates <laughs> to everything. That's just, that's what it felt like. There felt to be such an intimate knowledge of this universe, of, of these universes, I guess I should say. Um, and yeah, it. I think maybe the most amazing thing is that it has such a unique look, so much craziness consistently going on screen all of these zany characters coming from multi, uh, multiple universes and yet never loses loses this emotional core this main driving force uh like i don't think it's perfect i think both really i have only a couple problems that come to mind immediately and, and both relate to uh the primary villain and the side villain however everything relating to miles who's a really great character um is is just really spot on and and his relationship with his dad is incredibly sweet and i found myself very invested in their story and how things are going to wrap up and and yet the screen never just becomes a just visual noise and it's crazy considering what the climax is they were somehow able to constantly make you aware of what was happening and they did it in this like almost cartoonish and silly version of a way mm -hmm. that a doctor strange or inception would do it where it's like there's craziness on screen but we're having fun with it and uh yeah just all around a really really good movie so my number four is green book uh this is the movie about uh, vigo Mortensen and, Mah and mahershala ali as a black musician and his white driver slash bodyguard going on a, a trip to, uh, going on a uh, concert tour through the deep south and this is what the crazy is this is directed by peter farrelly who's the guy behind movies like uh not the dumber dumber movies but also movie 42 the three stooges um like i i'd never seen any of his movies but the the, the kind of movies that i actively avoid uh like that, that kind of really dumb comedy is something i, I can't do so coming to this movie i really didn't know what to expect but i think it's it's a really good drama but it, you know it has a fantastic kind of comedic undertone but it never in a way that undermines the fact that it's it's a drama it's a character drama about these two men kind of 
learning to appreciate each other as they go through this tour. Two men who could not be more different. Uh, and I think both performances are absolutely fantastic. Viggo Mortensen's playing this gi- giant, uh, you know, personality-wise, this huge Italian guy who's who's like just so big and funny. Um, which is fu- crazy because I've almost all the performances I've seen him in are very quiet, understated, introverted guys. So seeing him play this big, big loud, brash guy was really fun. Mahershala Ali is this very dignified, stiff. Uh, uh, a musician kind of who's, who's like he has like multiple doctorates and like incredibly intelligent um and so just having them two together in the car like half the film takes place with them in uh, in the car with a uh, vigo driving and and, and uh Herschelot in the back seat just talking together and the dialogue is so you know fun and snappy their chemistry is ridiculous um and i think it, it you know some people criticize it for not giving the end-all be-all message in, on racism and i don't think it was trying to do it it's just what it is is a movie about two people who discovered empathy, who were able to, you know, but realize the fact that this is these these you know this person who's very different from me is also a human being and coming to appreciate each other as people. Like that's all it is. Like can't we can we have movies that are just nice movies about people being nice to each other? Is, is that not allowed, James? I don't know. Uh, but yes, yeah, so I really really had a good time with this movie. I think it's just a joy to watch beginning to end like so i just had a huge smile on my face it was also surprisingly well directed i thought you know he had a, fairly brought a very not a very nice visual style and kind of snap to it all well i had absolutely no idea that was the director um because dumb and dumb the original dumb and dumber is i will say unashamedly one of my favorite films of all time and potentially the movie i've watched more than any other uh, but I would have never expected this from him, so that makes me all the more interested in it, despite having heard nothing but, uh, at least mostly, positive things to be said about it. Um, yeah, I definitely want to make sure to check that out. Um, so for my number four, uh, I have chosen Mission Impossible Fallout. Uh, this, from a sheer action perspective, this is one of the most impressive movies I have ever seen. And I think part of it comes from, and I usually dislike this, when a movie feels like there are like three or four sequences that could have served as the actual climax. But here, the way he kind of just weaves it into the story and what's going on works, and they're just so well directed that I, I don't want to take any of them out. Um he shoots some of these scenes in ways that I've just never really felt like I've experienced. Like we've seen 8,000 motorcycle chases, but this is one of the few times where like I'm genuinely like stiffening up and clenching up and just like, I'm terrified. And, and this after previously giving us the world's best motorcycle chase in the previous mission, mission impossible. Exactly. This guy, McQuarrie is just talented in a way that few people are. And even shorter like sequences, like the halo jumping scene, is just is so incredible watching when the oxygen tank becomes removed and is just flying all over the place and the camera's whizzing around and shooting it from all these different angles. It's so amazing. And, and the helicopter chase throughout the, uh, the forest of the mountains is absolutely stunning. And, and I think the fight in the bathroom is maybe my favorite, like, fist fight ever just because it's not only super well choreographed which you know we've had we really have had a lot of amazing 
uh, choreographed fistfights. But I feel like the camera equaled it. And a lot of times they aren't. They're, you know, intentionally so, or they just kind of put it on a tripod and let you look at how cool it looks. But here, the way the camera carries the momentum of each move, whenever someone hits, the camera doesn't just show you it, it pulls you with it. And we move into like the close quarters or just the stalls. It's, it is absolutely stunning. Um, so yeah, just all around, just such an incredibly impressive film. That comes up later on my list. Um, so my number three is A Quiet Place. And what to say about this movie? Uh, it's John Krasinski, uh, you know, from The Office, you know, showing himself to really be a force to be reckoned with as a director. Um, this the, the concept is is you know really cool. They ha- you know the family has to live you know live in this world full of these creatures that hunt them on sound, and I think the way that Krasinski uses the sound design to make you know, to really get it into your blood as an audience that you cannot make a sound like I've never had a quieter movie going experience than watching this movie. You are like so aware of like every little crinkle and rustle as you shift. Like you are also holding your breath because you know if you if you make a sound, this monster is going to burst out of the wall and kill you. Um, but just on top of just the technical level, I think that just is a brilliantly directed mo- movie. The sound design is, is impeccable, um, and also I think his visual direction, the way since he doesn't. Since the sound is so uh, subdued, he has to use the camera a lot to direct your eye. And I think just the way he moves around and you know, foc- what he focuses on it and it just directs your eye around the scene without without you know using sound as a crutch, I think is incredibly impressive. But also just the, the script and the emotional heart underneath it all. I think some of the most emotional scenes this year for me were in this movie. Uh, the performance is Emily Blunt is just a goddess and I, I worship her. Uh, but yeah, she's amazing. John Krasinski's great. The two kid actors, um, they hired like an act, a girl who is actually deaf to play their deaf daughter, uh, Millicent Simmons. Like she is really, really good. Like at, just as a technical exercise, I think it's a brilliant piece of filmmaking. But underneath it all, there's a very powerful drama. It's just that's what you know. All of that coming together to make it one of my favorite films this year. And, and you know, I saw we saw it. When did it come back? Like like out in February or something. And it stayed right near the top for me all year long yeah my number three is a quiet place as well um (laughs) and for all of the same reason you said on a technical level it's really really fantastic the sound design is incredible because you know it like you said it's so subdued but there are times where when sound does present itself and it presents itself in such a huge way and this is like the best audience I've ever had. We had people who were initially kind of noisemakers and just the entire audience kind of allied together to shut them up. And it was incredible. Um, but the movie, like like you said, on technical levels, it's incredibly well directed. The visuals are really, really cool. I think the creature design is really cool and creative. Uh, but yeah, the heart there. It's one of my favorite portrayals of like this kind of family unit where it's it's it feels very very real like the what she is going through as a daughter feels very true to that age and what he's going through as a father who who does love her and he's just what he's trying to show it's there's so many different things going on and the ending does bring me to tears uh yeah after almost a full year now still um one of one of the top movies of the year in my opinion and and kind of People are always complaining about a lack of originality, but to me, this is just proof that we still have these breaths of fresh air that come in. 
Um, so my number two is Mission Impossible Fallout. Yeah, everything you said about this movie is true and more. Um, I have become an enormous fan of Christopher McQuarrie, just from Jack Reacher and then Rogue Nation. But that he was able to come here and and like completely re- reinvent his identity as a filmmaker with you know he he got a new composer a new DP he he really he just came in and made what's like this very bleak Cold War thriller kind of feel to it, but also like on top of like the, the technical filmmaking on display is some of the best I think we'll ever see. Just the action sequences again and again and again are breathtaking whether they're fist fights or gigantic helicopter chases you know they're shot in a way that is crafted to maximize like exhilaration and but on top of that i think what's crazy about macquarie is that he he has shot both mission impossible films without a script and had to craft the narrative around the action sequences as he was shooting and yet i think these two mission impossible films have the best story (laughs) of the entire series like he has his dramatic instincts are insanely in tune. And just as the film goes, he's he's always able to just ground it in these characters and the character of Ethan Hunt and all the people around him. There's so much emotion behind all these action sequences, which, you know, it could have so easily just become a technical exercise, but he's able to just give the film this really powerful emotional heart, which is just stunning looking at the scale of the movie and just how much, and the fact that he was able to do this without a script uh, is just a crazy testament testament to him as a filmmaker. Um, yeah, one of my favorite directors, one of my favorite films of the year, and it's I think it's going to stand the test of time as just one of the great action films of all time. So my number one, I'm assuming, is your number two as well. Uh, so I guess we'll just talk about this together and let's, I'll let you get to your number one. Uh, it is... Avengers Infinity War. Yeah, boy. Uh, yes, so this movie is, is unprecedented in what it achieves. Um, I, I, I had no expectations that it wasn't going to be good. I think the Russos at this point are just too good to deliver anything below good. Uh, but the fact that it was able to take, you know, a decade, a near, nearly a decade, no, it was a decade, yeah, a decade's worth of stories and weave them all into one central thing and feel like this was the natural conclusion. This was this was this inevitable conflict that we've been building to ever since we saw him turn his head in, in 2012. Like, this just feels right with the films. And, you know, we've, we're coming off the, off the end of things like Ragnarok and, and age of Ultron and homecoming and all, and guardians too. And we're finding all of these different characters in so many different headspaces. You know, people accused of the, these movies of being too similar and everybody's just these quipping machines, but they're personality wise. There's so many different kinds of personalities here who are coming off of such different kinds of events. And yet this movie takes all of it continues them in organic ways while introducing its own primary conflict it's just amazing yeah i (laughs) just really really loved it i remember in the lead up to civil war people were talking about this movie is so big how can it possibly work like they shared pictures like look at the cast in this movie I, i i i think it was probably the most ambitious film at least from a pure like complexity and scale level ever made and then 
they make like one of the most ambitious films of all time, and then they go and make the actual most ambitious film of all time, and they knock out of the, they knocked it out of the park both times. This movie, it's like I don't even like we as mere mortals don't even have the framework to properly analyze like just how incredibly well executed this movie is. You know, you have twenty like at least twenty characters, probably more, who could be protagonist in their own films and you know they're they're carrying over the arcs from all the previous films and then they're coming together with with this gigantic universe spanning conflict uh and then obviously there's the character thanos who's played beautifully by josh brolin incredible motion capture who is arguably the protagonist of the film in a film (laughs) full of like 30 protagonists and they are able to give him a belief you know a wonderful you know a sense of identity and character motivation and empathy. Like this, this guy is like the evilest of evil, yet he has all this emotion around him and, you know, believable motivations and uh, a fantastic, well, not, not a great relationship with Gamora, but a fantastically real, well realized emotion uh, relationship with Gamora. And, and the, the way the, I love that the film is framed around like, if it, if you just want it, if you just want to look at it as an ensemble for all these characters coming together to fight a big bad, it functions. But also you can look at it at, with Thanos as the main character, you know, going through his kind of hero's journey or kind of like he's going through his own journey through the film and, and like it, it, it's 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 crazy the way this film is crafted. And so like it, it it functions on all these different levels and I think you know it has some flaws but they just pale in comparison to the achievement this was and I I I I'm trying weighing back and forth whether I want to mildly spoil this thing you know it's been almost a year but I I'm not going to spoil it I'm just going to say this film gave me probably in my top 5 most emotional reactions to a film that wasn't Lord of the Rings uh of all time um i saw this movie five times in the theaters and it destroyed my soul every time and, and not just like oh it's so sad it's like it gives you the most heartbreaking thing you've ever seen and then just keeps punching that sore spot for like 10 minutes it's it's like it's it's such a just emotionally devastating film it has a lot of the marvel fun in it but it also knows when to just be sad and when and when to let the when to let the characters lose and when it all comes together i just i've i have not felt many things like this watching movies the the uh, and audacity feels like a weird word but the audacity or, or boldness to end this movie the way they do on the shot they choose is incredible and i cannot exactly i cannot wait for Endgame. It's like, you hurt me um, and I love you for it. <laughs> yes, it's, it's going to be incredible. So yeah, for, for my number one, though, this year... Oh, I was expecting us to r- rave about this for another 10 minutes. <laughs> oh, well, I will absolutely do that. Just because, again, I, and I feel like I've become... Like, I've loved this movie since I first saw it. But I've begun to appreciate it more and more the more I think about it. Just because of things like how... how I, many different side plots and characters they're having to pull in while introducing this new conflict and the way they do it is so interesting where it's it's like these almost different segmented pieces of the movie where you've got Thor's journey with Rocket and Groot and you've got Captain America with Vision and Wanda and you've got 
Tony with Peter in space and, and Doctor Strange. Like, you've got all of these different things. And, you know, isolated, they're, they're not all super long. Uh, but just the editing of the movie is kind of amazing, where you're taking all of these things, that none of which could stand as their own movie by themselves, just in terms of runtime, but you're weaving through all of these different, this, this different universe-spanning conflict in a way that feels like it's presenting the story in this natural way, um, despite having huge numbers of primary characters who never interact with each other. It's astounding. Also, visually, uh, the previous two uh, Russo films have like, like a very muted color palette, They're going very much for the very uh, documentary. Uh, Born-esque style, which I, I think works beautifully for those two films, which they're kind of spy thrillers. But this one abandons all that and goes like full Guardians of the Galaxy in this color palette with these like gorgeous compositions. I, I love that they were able to, you know, compl- like uh, Christopher McQuarrie, just completely revamp their visual style and also just execute it perfectly. Yeah, and more so than, than their previous ones, this is just boldly and proudly a comic book movie. You know, we've got this giant yeah. alien throwing this hammer, and it stops, and Spider-Man peeks his head out, and it's like, "Oh, is this guy bothering me?" Like, it's this is this is comic books on screen. It's incredible. Yeah. And so, for your number one, yes, for my number one, uh, I have chosen Hereditary. This, this may have stuck with me more than any other horror movie I've ever watched, um, which is great. Like, critically, it is just adored across the board completely. Um, I would be over the moon if it actually got to see some recognition at the Oscars, which it completely deserves. Um, It's been very divisive among uh, audiences, and it's because it's so different from most horror movies, most of which their goal number one, before telling a story, before doing all of this stuff, is just to scare you. And I enjoy those movies quite often, but this, this... is a a slow burn family drama first and foremost um and an uncomfortable one at that more so than than the scares what's so unsettling about this is just watching a family fall apart in what feels like a realistic way there are there are moments where there are just tra- horrific tragedies happen and we don't get to cut away. We have to live in that moment. And it's not these kind of cinematic, like, the whole room gets together and hugs and cries and the music. It's, this is what it'd be like. This uncomfortable, almost awkward way of dealing with what's happened. And it's just so horrific. And that's before we really even talk about it as a horror movie. The way it deals with like the subject matter of the demonic and the occult is so horrific because uh, Ari Aster, and this is his debut film, studied the occult to like deliver accuracy, and so knowing that this is based on actual things that that people could practice uh, makes it that much more spine chilling. But it's one of the most layered, if not maybe the most layered horror movies I've seen. Where rewatching it, I'm constantly noticing something that I didn't notice before. There's so many conversations that are happening where, where things seem to be mentioned offhand, and and even visual things, stuff that that the movie doesn't even really use, like try to emphasize, and then you notice it, like oh my gosh, they just showed that before this was shown, and 
a like it's one of the most impressive displays of of a control of atmosphere and a control of tone I've ever seen and um uh, Tony Collette gives what is my favorite performance of the year she if there is justice she's going to be nominated for best actress because she is truly flawless in this film and and when it does finally come to the scares they are horrifying um they're few and far between but when they happen they genuinely get very realistic loud gasps from me um watching it in the theater the entire theater together just exhales in this horrifying moment it's truly an incredible piece of film uh, I I this is a movie I will never watch. Everything you've said about it, I was like, yeah, this is a huge nope for me. You know, Avengers Infinity War destroyed my world enough. I don't need it to be picked apart in an even more horrifying way. <laughs> so that was our top 10 of this year. Uh, let's just run through it again real quickly. Uh, for my, no- my number 10, 10 was First Man. 9 was They Shall Not Grow Old. Number 8 was Creed 2. Number seven was Solo. Number six was Incredibles 2. Number five, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Number four, Green Book. Number three, A Quiet Place. Number two, Mission Impossible Fallout. And number one, Avengers Infinity War. And yours? So 10 was Annihilation. Nine was The Incredibles 2. Eight was Black Klansman. Seven was Upgrade. Six was Solo. Five was Into the Spider-Verse. Four was Mission Impossible Fallout. Three was A Quiet Place. Two was Avengers Infinity War. And one was Hereditary. All right, so that was 2018. Um, yeah, as we said, you know, not like the most spectacular year for movies, but it had it had some all time greats in there, as well as like a lot of really solid movies. Um, before we close out, uh, let's talk a bit about the movies we are anticipating the most for 2019, which uh, has the potential to be like another like 2016 level of just mind blowing. I don't know if it'll actually get there, but I have so many movies that I'm like ridiculously pumped for than a whole lot more that i'm excited as well um so i'm gonna run through my most anticipated films of 2019 real quick the first two are obviously avengers endgame and star wars episode 9 i mean obviously those are movies that like i my my level of hype is like an entirely different reality for those number the third one is how to train your dragon the hidden world i am a ridiculously huge fan of the previous two films i think there's some of the the greatest uh, animated movies like pixar level great and I'm so sad that James has not watched them yet. Uh, the next one is Glass, M. Night Shyamalan, you know, finishing up his, uh, you know, his, uh, I, I, what is this trilogy even called? I don't even know if it has a name, but like we didn't even know it was going to be a trilogy, but apparently is, and I cannot wait to the end of it. You know, I really hope he continues his comeback because I'm really glad he's back. Uh, the next one is Aladdin. I, I, just, I just really want to see Guy Ritchie have another win. I love Man from Uncle. Arthur was, King Arthur was, but I, I really hope he can kind of get his style back together and deliver us a really fun Disney movie. Uh, then there's Spider-Man Far From Home. I'm just really excited to see where this this character goes. Toy Story 4. This is a movie that I don't, I don't even know if I want, but if it can break my soul anywhere near the way Toy Story 3 did, I'll love it. Uh, then there's The King Who Would Be King. This is from Joe Cornish, the director of Attack the Block, which is a criminally underrated little... Uh, sci-fi film uh so I'm, I'm i'm just on that alone i'm really excited but also i think the trailers have been very good and very like very clever um for a kid's movie it feels like it could be a really fun family movie then there's artemis fowl from kenneth branagh kenneth branagh duh 
uh, and Knives Knives Out, which is going to be Ryan Johnson's little, uh, mystery kind of Agatha Christie homage film, which sounds amazing. I'm a big fan of uh, Johnson. Then uh, and Shazam, which uh, it doesn't like. It really has nothing about what made me fall in love with the DCU, but it still looks like it's going to be a really fun movie. And there's a Chaos Chaos Walking, which is a uh, a YA movie from Doug Liman. I've read the books. Uh, I don't. There's actually very little information available about the film, but it does star uh, Tom Holland and Daisy Ridley. So, oh wow, that's fun. And then the final one is X Men Dark Phoenix. I have a lot of worries about this, but. I think I'm one of the few people on planet Earth that's still 100% invested in this first class timeline. Just the, I feel, I feel like the entire world as one has decided they're garbage, like without actually, I don't entirely even know why, but I'm still excited for this movie. I love the cast. I'm excited. I'm a little concerned about Simon Kinberg directing, but yeah, he, he undeniably knows this world and knows these characters. So I, I think if done well, it could be a very emotionally satisfying conclusion and probably the last X-Men film we're going to see. Yeah, so my my number one, there's a lot of crossover. My number one is episode nine, whatever it's going to be called. And we need a title already. It's been too long. Um, my hype levels, like you said, there's, there's really no way to convey them. I, I am chomping at the bit to see things like Kylo Ren's fate. What does the Jedi Order look like by the end of this? How are they going to tie? It's my mind can't comprehend it. And then followed just millimeters behind is Endgame. These two movies are going to wreck my universe. Um, <laughs> and I could not have been more pleased with the Endgame teaser. That was just perfection. Whether they're good or bad, universes will be wrecked. Exactly. Either because of how good they are or the fact that they weren't. Um, for my third favorite, I am just a big fan of monsters, and the first trailer <laughs> of King of the Monsters is one of the most beautiful trailers, in my opinion, I've ever seen. The way it captures scale and the way that Gareth Edwards did is like that's back, but it's combined with this color scheme that elevates this real world grittiness to just what feels like mythic proportions. It looks incredible. Um, my number four is Glass. I I love Unbreakable. I think I might even like Split just a tad bit more. And the trailers for Glass have me incredibly excited. Just the thought of seeing these characters who I never in a million years would have thought would interact with each other in the same room just looks so amazing. Um, And I kind of lose order after this. These are just other movies I'm really excited about. I think... If, if nothing else, Joker has me incredibly intrigued just because I think Joaquin Phoenix is arguably the best actor from his generation and to see him portraying what might be like the most iconic villain. Not Christian Bale? The two of them. Because I, I, I really do think those are the two best actors of their entire generation. The roles they've taken, just the idea of seeing Phoenix play this role is incredible to me. Um and of course, we have the other Marvel movies, Far From Home, which I'm very, very excited. Um, I'm not quite as high on Captain Marvel so far. The trailers haven't done too much for me, but I know that there's going to be ways to tie it into Endgame, and it's going to be really exciting. And and I mean, we're going to see Coulson and an eyepatchless Fury, so it's going to be super cool. Um, Lego Movie 2 has me really excited. Not as much as I would be if Lord and Miller were returning, but the trailers seem really funny, and I think even if they lose just that true magic that the first had, this will likely still be a really enjoyable animated movie. Um, 
I think Us from Peel looks super cool. It's exactly the kind of horror that's right up my alley where it's just completely weird and surreal and off the wall and, and unnerving and the acting and visual style all looks great. Um, Shazam looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. Disney has its l- three live action films, Aladdin, Lion King, and Dumbo, all of which I thought, uh, from what we've seen, look, I mean, what we'd expect in a good way. I think they're all likely going to be good. Um, I'm happy with the trailer for Men in Black International. I'm one of the few who's who really, really, or you and I both really enjoyed the third one. And I'm totally cool with more of the same in this case and that's kind of what it looked to be um toy story 4 i'm holding out is going to be amazing um it chapter 2 is going to scratch that horror itch for me oh yeah i forgot about that uh, that's one of mine too yeah i'm I'm really excited to see how it result. the cast just sounds incredible um apparently there i don't know if it's going to make it highly doubt it but apparently death on the nile is still supposed to be 2019 is it from what i've heard if not then you can strike that from my list yeah i don't see that happening because he's got artemis falcon yeah i i highly doubt it happens but i think the placeholder date at least says 2019 uh and then lastly um once upon a time in hollywood i am really excited and intrigued by a true story from tarantino i think it's either going to be absolutely amazing or he's going to bring his gleeful sense of violence and style to true story and just make me sick at my stomach either way um i'm very very intrigued by it and i'm sure on a technical level it's going to be fantastic and the cast is incredible the the story itself outside of however he decides to treat it is just incredibly interesting so i'm and it's a new tarantino movie so yeah. All right. So uh, that was our year in review episode for 2018. So I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I'd like to ask you to please go and give us a rating and review on iTunes. That would be very helpful. And if you want to follow us on Facebook, you, um, if you want to like us on Facebook, we are there as Franchise Fatigue Podcast. And if you want to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, we are there as at Franchised Pod. And if you want to find our other episodes, you can go to FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And where can people follow you, James? Uh, so primarily on Letterboxd, I'm there as J.L. Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. Uh, and we can finally use it again after being down for so long. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook. You and I are both admins over at Star Wars fans who actually like Star Wars. Um, and uh, Resistance is about to finish up this month. And so I've only I've seen the two-part um, series opener. But I've wait. I've decided to wait until the entire season is done, and I'll binge it. So I'm excited to to continue that. And if you are also excited about it, feel free to join us over there and talk about it. And I am also on Letterboxd. I am there as Gabriel Green, and uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm there as Gabe A Green, and I am on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green. So uh, next week we will be going back to Mission Impossible with uh, John Woo's Mission Impossible Two. I know we said that we would be doing that this week, but uh, we don't actually plan that far ahead. Yeah, next week will be Mission Impossible 2, and I, it's going to be fun. It's going to be yeah, fun. We'll have a look. It'll, it'll be fun, <laughs> maybe despite the movie. So until next week, we will see you in the sequel. See ya.